KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is the Rundown, Philadelphia's local news podcast for Monday, October 25th, 2021. And today we're talking about SEPTA. And we're kind of wondering if they are in crisis. The Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority, as the Roots once called it, has had a really tough couple of weeks. And riders are largely biting their nails as now the union says they're ready to potentially go on strike. Members voted that if contract negotiations break down, that if we're forced to, we will go on strike. And there are still more questions and answers after a man raped and assaulted a woman on the Market Frankfurt L two weeks ago. There is a narrative out there that people sat on the L train uh, and watched this transpire and took videos of it for their own gratification. That is simply not true. It did not happen. I'm joined today by the producers, Brian Seltzer and Sabrina Boyd-Circa. Good to see you on this Monday. Jay, good to be with you guys. There's a really confusing narrative about the really troubling situation that took place on the L earlier this month. I'm looking forward to finding out more about it, where that narrative stands, and also what's next in possibly prosecuting this case. We were talking about this last week, and I think I phrased it as this is like a digital game of telephone where something happened, and then every time the story gets retold and now it's in international news, it gets bigger and bigger. You know, as a SEPTA writer, I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit nervous about my safety hearing about rapes and assaults, and I'm also thinking – how am I going to get to work in a week or so if they go on strike? I didn't didn't cross my mind that that was going to affect me until we talked to Mike DiNardo today. And I, then I realized that affects a lot of people, myself included. This is a situation that is getting so messy that we actually needed two people to come in and help us break it down. We'll be joined by Suburban Bureau Chief Jim Melwert, as well as our transportation and education reporter, Mike DiNardo. I'm Jay Scott Smith, but let's get down now to business on the Monday edition of The Rundown. And we'll start with the city of Philadelphia giving out payments to people who were recently released from jail in the hopes of cutting off recidivism. Sabrina, when I first saw this story, it really astonished me because I'm thinking, I don't know if any other place has really done this or if they have, has it even been to this level? That's a good question. And I don't know. This is definitely sort of a test case going on. They've given uh, $500 payments to 900 people so far. The idea is that this will help them kind of get on their feet. You know, when you just get out of jail, you might not have anything and you're expected to go out and get a job and pay for your food, pay for your rent. $500 isn't going to get you very far, but it'll at least get you those first couple of steps. And this comes after a lot of people were released from prison with the goal of decreasing the population in the pandemic, having less people cooped up in jails during COVID. Philadelphia's chief public safety strategist, Erica Atwood, explained that a bit. Folks were coming out um, without jobs, without assets, without resources. Um, We wanted to make sure that by doing a good thing, by reducing the prison population, we weren't leaving folks out there to kind of just fend for themselves. I think this is needed. I hope that it works well. The idea is that more people are going to be able to stay out of prison if they have a little bit of help getting back into life. I'm going to say I hope that it works. The toughest thing for people when they get out of jail is staying out of jail. Recidivism is a massive issue, and there's so many things that could send people back to jail anyway. And oftentimes it's unfortunately having had family members who have who've gone to jail, have known, having known people I grew up with who went to jail and had to 
it becomes a pipeline where sometimes it's just as simple as for them, there's more structure on the inside than there is on the outside. And they come out, they have no job prospects, they have no money. $500 to someone who's been in jail, that helps a ton. It can even for some of the, some of the smallest things, it can help is get you maybe some clothes for a job interview, get you off the street. This is something interesting. I don't think I've heard of anything like this from a particular city. Now, we go from the city across the Delaware River into South Jersey, and there is a historic landmark in South Jersey that is in need of some help from what I understand, Brian. I have no takes on this story other than to shine, hopefully, even more light on some great reporting by our Antoinette Lee here at KYW News Radio. Peter Mott House in Camden County is over 175 years old. It needs about $100,000, they say, to essentially stay alive. Um, some background from reading Antoinette's reporting. Preacher Peter Mott and his wife Elizabeth, they own the house. It was a safe haven for people who were enslaved before the Civil War. Um, right now, the New Jersey Historic Trust is willing to put up $60,000, but it seems like they'll only do that if that can be matched, an additional $60,000. So um, this is a point of pride for a very small community in Lawnhurst. More on the website, PeterMottHouse.org. You can donate there. I just thought it was a worthwhile story uh, to bring up and, again, some great reporting by Antoinette Lee. Everyone knows how important Philadelphia was to abolition and the Underground Railroad, people finding the slaves, finding their way out of the South, finding their way up here. You tend to forget that there were lots of, quote, unquote, stops on the way and including in places like New Jersey. Now, again, we switch gears here. We now come back into the city and we look at Frankfurt High School. Now, they've launched a new clean energy training lab, from what I understand. Yeah, so they're teaching kids basically to install solar panels, to do jobs that are more geared towards clean energy. We're always talking about climate change and how it's going to lose so many jobs. Well, here is a step towards training people and kids to do the jobs that will bring in more clean energy. 11th grader Angel Camacho is part of the program. I'm trying to be like a roof installer when I grew up. So because I just I because I already know most of most of the stuff already. I already know how to do it, how to install it and everything or the anchor has to go on top of the rooftop. But that's my main objective in life to like be a roof installer. I always think it's great when these sort of tech programs give kids real world skills. You don't have to go on to a four year program, college program, if that's not the right thing for you. You're basically taking what a trade school would be, mm -hmm. except you're gearing it toward green energy. Mm -hmm. It's a win-win for all involved, and it's really cool to get, get get kids involved in it now. Because again, some people might prefer to do trades; they might want to work with their hands, do really cool stuff like this. And young yeah. and young Camacho there, he seems like he's already got a pretty good idea of what it is he wants to do. I thought that was really awesome to hear. You know, you always hear kids saying, I want to be a doctor. Or I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. And he's just like, I know what I want to do. I want to be a roof installer. And that's awesome. You start that business, you do the right things. And especially with solar panels, you can make a lot of money on that. that that's really a cool story. One more thing. It started off as the Facebook, literally <laughs> the Facebook. Now it's just Facebook. And apparently... They are thinking of changing their name in the midst of all this controversy they're in. Now, Mark Zuckerberg announced that they are looking to change the company name. There might be a lot more they need to change, too. Um, <laughs> we can get into possible name changes, but as we're taping this, some news coming out within the last couple hours is that this group of 17 U.S. media outlets gathered together and based off of some whistleblower testimony, 
published a series called The Facebook Papers, which has even more not very good information about practices internally at Facebook. And it really does seem like it's every day now, at the least every week, where there's just more and more being piled upon Facebook and its practices or lack thereof on how it looks out for the well-being of its users. It has to make you think, is this name change, which could come down pretty soon, is this sort of a little PR thing? Makes you wonder. Now, to be clear, <laughs> the Facebook, as you know it, the app is still going to be called Facebook, but the company that owns Facebook, Instagram, Oculus, everything else in the world – is maybe going to have a different name. Parent, a parent company deal. Like right, how right. Google's parent company is called Alphabet, for example, even though it's still Google and YouTube and all the other things that are surrounding it. I will say this, though. You know it's not a good look when your company's name is associated with something called the Facebook Papers. They're, they're not talking about charitable donations when your name is associated with anything called the blank papers. That's, there, there's usually something bad coming down the road for them. The fact that 17 news organizations banded together to work on this, I mean, that that says a lot when you're trying to possibly go after a giant like Facebook. You barely can get 17 journalists to agree on a lot of things, and you're getting 17 organizations. The name change, like Brian said, might not be the only thing they need to change around here. And now we will switch gears, and we welcome in a friend of ours, my friend, Miss Denise Nakano. She is the midday anchor here at KYW News Radio. Those who are here in the city of Philadelphia may also remember her smiling face from her time on our broadcast partner, NBC10. And Denise, you've been here with us a little bit more than a year, and I've gotten to know you pretty well because she sits right next to me in the office, so we're around each other all the time. We're pod mates. And one, and one thing that people don't know a lot about, apparently, is how great of an artist you are. And today, you showed off some of that artistry by going on your Instagram and posting a very creative-looking pumpkin with the KYW letters on it. Jay, I, you know what? I just need more stuff to do. No, not really. I've got four <laughs> kids. I just got a puppy like two weeks ago. I really don't need more. But, you know, I think uh, art and those kind of creative outlets are like a lifeline for me. So, you know, I'm busy with the deadlines of, of doing journalism and things like that. But when it comes time to settle and after I, I get some moment to myself, then it's really nice to have some time to, to, to delve into – different projects, whether it's charcoal drawing or uh, my pandemic project was learning how to do stained glass. I went on YouTube to learn how to do that. And I just feel like I'm just under the impression that you can do whatever you want to do if you want it badly enough. So if you want to learn how to do something new, you take the efforts and take the steps to get there. I feel like that's just my, my motto in life. The stained glass thing is what got me because I think the first time you showed me a picture of it, I thought you'd bought that from somewhere. I didn't realize <laughs> Because putting together stained glass is not easy. It is, and in fact, there are certain points of it are kind of painful to do that. And painful could be a little toxic if you don't get the right, you know, airflow. You know, breathe in too heavily the fumes. It's not a good thing. <laughs> and there's metal, but, and there's glass involved. Right, you could burn and, yourself. I cut myself all the time because I, I should be wearing gloves when I don't. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, these projects for me is just, you know, and this one was just something. Okay, I was with the kids. We bought some pumpkins from Produce Junction. I ended up, you know, sitting down with it. Mine was like half rotting. I'm like, I got to get to this and start carving it. And I just thought, you know, I'm just so I feel so fortunate and thankful to be here at KYW. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carve a KYW News Radio pumpkin. And so I ended up, uh, you know, just kind of making an outline, sticking on there and, and just carving away. So, <laughs> How did you do it? What were the mechanics, Denise, of actually etching this? I, I don't know how, with the precision and detail, it's even possible. 
okay, so you get some tools and basically go to the grocery store because they have like patterns and stuff. But, you know, of course, I made my own pattern. So I just took a piece piece of white paper, got our graphic on, you know, on the computer, just brought that up and, and just kind of sketched it out and then just transferred it over. You transferred it over on the pumpkin by putting whatever kind of uh, – pattern that you have and then you start poking holes around it where you're supposed to cut. You take the paper off okay. and then you use whatever tool, which is kind of like a serrated knife. And I'm not saying I'm good with tools or anything, but, you know, <laughs> I, I know my way around, I guess, a, a pumpkin carving little tool. Um, and then you just cut into it. How long did that take? That looks like that's because no. to kind of angle it around where people seen the KYW logo, that's not something you just can do in five or 10 minutes. Well, I think the actual putting it on and sketching it on a paper first took a little bit, you know, took about 15 minutes or so. And then once you get it onto the, the pumpkin, you just kind of poke around it and then cutting through it is not a, not a big deal. I mean, you just kind of use your serrated thing and just go, you know, and you cut through it. And yeah, I, it, it's enjoyable for me. And, the, you know, the kids did their pumpkins and I did mine. And I love that you have these hobbies and, and this other artistic expression, this other side that, you know, all of our listeners haven't even seen of you. Um, but I mean, everything you said, how you use this as your outlet and, and people, you can do whatever you want to do if you just try hard enough. It was really inspiring. Maybe I'll give drawing another chance. Yeah, you should. I mean, I really, really think that. And I think if you run into roadblocks, enough of them, then you become disinterested. But if you really want to keep doing it, then you take the you steps gotta to get there. You got to push through that stage of I'm really bad at this and I do, like I don't want to do it if I can't do it well. You got to be willing to do it badly first. Yeah. You which be I haven't gotten past Because yet. no one is, is going to be good at anything right away. You right. just have to kind of take the steps and get better and you get better with practice. So I feel like, you know, all these things kind of go into different areas of, of my life and I felt like, too, in broadcasting, it's like you take the baby steps. You know, when you're when I was 13 and wanted to become, uh, you know, a journalist and go into television and radio, you know, I, I just determined at 13 that I was going to do that. And I just took baby steps to get there, not being overwhelmed by the bigger picture, like, oh, my gosh, being TV and being on radio or whatever. I just took the baby steps and and boom, you know, you you make it happen. The amazingly talented Denise Nakano, you got work to do, so I know we're going to let you get back to it. But thank you for, so much for coming in here and talking with a us. A pleasure. And joining, anytime. Joining I'll come us back here. anytime you'd like. You're always welcome here, Denise. Thank you so much. Now it's time to take a deep dive here on The Rundown and sort through this gigantic mess that we have with SEPTA. And we are joined today by KYW's Mike DiNardo. Now, he handles education, but also, of course, as you know, he covers mass transit for us as well. Mike, good to have you once again on here. Always a pleasure, Jay. And, of course, there's Jim Melwork, KYW's Suburban Bureau Chief, because a lot of these issues with SEPTA don't just affect the city of Philadelphia. It also goes out into the burbs. Jim, good to have you here with us. Hey, Jay, thanks for having me. Mike, I'll start with you. SEPTA and its largest labor union, are close to a deadline of 12.01 on the 1st of November for a deadline for a new contract. And over the weekend, there was a vote by their largest union to authorize a strike if that is necessary. Now, Willie Brown is the union's president, and we're going to get a quick, just find out what he had to say here before we go further into this. This is something they force us to do. We're working every day during the pandemic. We work, but yet they're treating our people as a second-class citizens. We're not going to tolerate that. Now, this is some hard-line talk. This is some tough talk. Just how frustrated is that union? Well, it's, it's hard-line talk, and the, the Transport Workers Union, Local 234, has a long history of uh, hard-line stances and taking to the picket lines if they don't like the way things are going. Uh, there have been something like a dozen SEPTA strikes since 1971. So when they take a strike authorization vote, uh, they mean it. Uh, the union is 
extremely frustrated. They've been thinking about this uh, all during the pandemic. Many of the SEPTA workers, they had to remain on the front lines while many other others of us had the option to work from home. Uh, those SEPTA workers had to be on the front lines to make sure that other frontline workers, such as hospital workers and uh, grocery store workers, so that they could get to their essential jobs. These are the operators who are working no matter what. And they had to enforce uh, things like the mask mandate and, and get in the faces of riders to tell them that they had to wear a mask and they had to uh, put up with the, whatever abuse they got back from those those riders. So you have that, not to mention that 11 transport workers, union members died of COVID during the pandemic. Uh, and the union says it wants more compensation for the families of those workers beyond just a fruit basket. So the union is is pretty frustrated, Jay. It sounds like it. And regardless of whether or not people are supportive of what the union is doing, thousands of people are going to have their lives turned upside down if they just so happen to go on strike. Now, we got a chance to speak with some riders at 30th Street Station over the weekend, and KW News Radio's Hadas Kuznets asked them what could happen if SEPTA goes on strike. I hate when they go on strike because if SEPTA goes on strike, it's hard for people that don't have a car. If SEPTA goes on strike, then how am I going to go see my daughter or go to work? What is I'm supposed to do? How else you going to get to school? They're going to have to stay home, do virtual. That means the parents going to have to be in the background. How the parents going to go to work? A strike would impact me personally, but I would support the reasons why they're doing it. Yeah, every, every aspect of my life. Yeah, rely on SEPTA for pretty much everything. Jim, as we were talking to them there at 30th Street Station, this is not just a city deal, obviously. People also take regional rail. A lot of the SEPTA lines go back and forth between the suburbs. Plenty of people in the suburbs could be affected by this. What are they thinking out there if SEPTA goes on strike? Yeah, regional rail would continue to run, but the trolley, you know, that that's an important uh, service uh, from here where I am right now in Norristown. Uh, and along that stretch, uh, that's an important route. And then also people getting into the city, how do they get around? We've seen the effects out here as well for people who who rely on mass transit and, and has been pointed out many times. Uh, a lot of times those can be the people who need it the most. So, Mike, I guess when it comes to this as well, what are some of the sticking points? Yeah, from from the transport workers side, they want wage increases, obviously. They want parental leave. Right now, SEPTA workers have to use their sick time first. They want more compensation for the families of workers who have died of COVID. Uh, They're really concerned about safety. Uh, SEPTA drivers and maintenance workers have uh, complained uh, of, of being beaten and assaulted on the job, even shot at by people who are selling drugs or living at stations. So the transport workers want more police to be able to protect them and to protect the riders. From SEPTA's point of view, even though they're getting more than a billion dollars in federal relief money, SEPTA is looking at an uncertain financial future because, uh, number one, ridership is still less than half of what it was before COVID. SEPTA is losing more than a million dollars each day in revenue. Plus, you have state funding uncertain in the future because SEPTA has been getting revenue from turnpike tolls, but that money is expiring after this year. So knowing that, SEFTA has offered two contract proposals to the union, one, a two-year deal that offers wage increases and a four-year deal that would base raises on increases in ridership. So essentially it would uh, be based on SEFTA's ability to pay. 
but neither of those proposals, Jay, is getting a very warm reception from the union right now. The language that they put out was ridiculous, and we totally reject every proposal that they offered us. Just in terms of the negotiations, do you have a sense of what direction things are leaning? Does public sentiment seem to be on the side of the union on this? Yeah, public sentiment uh, could go either way, depending on whether you need to ride SEPTA or not. Uh, But this is a very pro-union town, as some people may be supportive of the union, even while they are personally inconvenienced. Five years ago, you had a six-day strike, and there was the the, the pressure of the election, and city officials didn't want uh, there to be no SEPTA service on election day, concerned about turnout. So you had that. You don't have that this time. What you do have, perhaps, is the pressure of the Philadelphia School District and all the the 60,000-plus students who ride SEPTA to school every day. Very few people want to go back to uh, virtual uh, education, um, and that is the plan if there is a SEPTA strike. So there could be some uh, education advocates and uh, uh, people on that side who are putting pressure on SEPTA and the SEPTA negotiators to say, hey, do what you have to do to settle this uh, contract dispute because we don't want to see kids going back to virtual learning. Now, Mike, you've had a lot of experience covering contract disputes like this. So let's just fast forward to 1201 Monday morning. We're just out of Halloween. It's November 1st. And we're still at an impasse. So what is going to happen here? Well, impasse is a specific legal term in labor language. But generally, the answer is anything can happen. The union can say, that's it. At 12.01, strike is on and we're walking off the job. Uh, The union and SEPTA could decide that progress is being made and the two sides would continue to keep talking and the buses would keep rolling and, and trains would keep running. Or you know, the pressure of the deadline could force both sides to meet in the middle and a tentative agreement could be reached. So the the answer to that question is pretty much anything can happen. Jim, I know that it's not just the issue of the strike. Another major issue that SEPTA is dealing with right now are safety concerns. And a lot of this is stemming from the sexual assault that occurred on the L just a couple of weeks ago. It made international headlines and not just because simply this is an unbelievably frightening and disturbing crime. This case is being handled by Delaware County District Attorney Jack Stolsteimer, and he made his position pretty clear. I don't know how to make this any easier for you to understand. There are people getting off and on a train as it's moving through different stations. This is the L, guys. We've all ridden it. People get off and on at every single stop. That doesn't mean when they get on and they see people interacting that they know a rape is occurring. So what we're trying to do is gather everybody who witnessed anything that night without fear of being prosecuted to come forward. What I want people to know is people in this region are not, in my experience, so inhuman and callous human beings that they're going to sit there and just watch this happen. There's been a lot of confusion and a lot of conjecture about what exactly went on. What did you gather from what Jack Stolsteimer had to say there. <laughs> well, prosecutors in this case are now up against the headwind of trying to find witnesses who are scared to come forward because uh, some in law enforcement have said anyone who witnessed this could be charged with the crime. And, and what you're hearing there is Jack Stolsteimer saying there is no Pennsylvania statute that says 
if you witness a crime and don't do anything to help, especially a violent crime that could put yourself in danger, but any crime period, if you witness it and don't step in to stop it, there is no statute that says you can be charged. You cannot be charged with a crime for not stepping in and helping. Despite what we heard from some law enforcement officials the weekend after the days after this rape occurred, where they were saying if anybody held up their phone and videotaped this or videoed this, they could be charged with the crime. And 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 that's the root of this, is that there, that there were law enforcement officials, uh, one of whom was standing next to Jack Stolsteimer at this press conference, which, you know, was in itself uh, somewhat absurd. But there were law enforcement officials who said there were people who could have done something here. And then that kind of started rolling down the hill and snowballed. And if you look it up in uh, a lot of the tabloids, especially the European tabloids, it became a situation where you have an L train barreling through Philadelphia uh, with people standing around holding up their phones as a man's raping a woman. And that's kind of what this has evolved into now. And then add into this narrative that uh, law enforcement officials saying uh, that that witnesses could potentially be charged. Uh, Stolsteimer says he has enough with the surveillance video from the train. We have the evidence to make our case now. That's why we've made the charges. That's why we're very confident in the conviction in this matter. But witnesses would still be helpful. But now, potentially, these witnesses are scared off because law enforcement officials said they might be charged with the crime. Again, they can't. There is no charge that that they could face. There is no statute that, that would bring charges. But the other part of this is Stolsteimer now needs to hold a press conference to say that people in Philadelphia aren't callous enough to stand around and video as a woman's getting raped on a train. His point is, and, and it's laid out in a criminal complaint, though it is a bit vague, that it starts around uh, you know 9 p.m. They get on the train uh, and then the rape occurs around 9.50 so there's this long window where they're sitting together on a train where people, you know, as, as Stolsteimer says, it's the L, people are getting on and off. They may not realize the interaction that's happening. So to say that people should have and could have stepped in, uh, Stolsteimer says it, it's not that cut and dry. It, it was stunning. It's also worth mentioning that there was another assault at the 69th Street Station Terminal about a week later. So, Mike, there's two issues at hand here. First, the safety itself on SEPTA. And secondly, how SEPTA riders can look out for each other. So what measures is SEPTA taking to do better on both fronts? They're reviewing their security. They're redeploying police officers at stations where they know there are particular problems. Uh, They're adding more unarmed security officers. And if you look around on SEPTA, if you're on the platform, if you're on a bus or or the L, you know that there are security cameras everywhere. And as Jim was talking about, they can provide evidence in in prosecutions. But SEPTA is also working on forming a real-time unit to watch those security feeds live, uh, Jay, that will help police respond when they see a crime in progress. Jim, going back to the rape on October 13th, where do we stand in that investigation? We're awaiting preliminary hearing, uh, which we'll likely learn a lot more about this. Uh, there were some questions, you know, about what and and not to, to sound graphic because that's not what, what I'm intending here. But what, what did this assault look like? Because there are different levels of, you know, is somebody passed out and unable to consent is somebody fighting back. And and so that's one of the, the big question. When Again, when you hear this narrative of people standing around not doing anything, uh, how clear was it that this was was a rape? And again, that's that sounds terrible, but it's not to be graphic. It's more to be 
you know, kind of understanding of what people, again, getting on and off an L train might have seen. So that, that'll happen at the preliminary hearing. You know, as Stolsteimer pointed out, the, the, the second arrest, the, the one at 69th Street for the sexual assault and, and uh, possible attempted rape, Stolsteimer points out that a, a woman screamed and people ran to help one of those, except a, a transit police officer who was able to arrest Alan. And SEPTA's under a, a bit of fire here because they knew who Edwin Allen was. Uh, he's the, the man who was arrested for this uh, attempted assault. They had an idea who he was because of some previous groping allegations. So they were looking for him. Uh, and there wasn't any kind of, you know, the question now is, should there have been some kind of alert? And, you know, I think it's easy to kind of Monday morning quarterback that. But this is what they're under and things clearly need to be done to to restore people's faith in, in the system. Mike and Jim, obviously, we certainly appreciate your input on this very quickly. Mike, what is something that you're working on right now? Well, of course, we're keeping an eye on the uh, the SEPTA talks. Um, not sure. I'm not really working on much else at the moment because uh, this is <laughs> it's it's consuming my life. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, just just got back from a week vacation. So we're going to do some actual journalism soon. <laughs> Nothing says welcome back quite like a possible work stoppage that could affect the entire area. And Jim, this weekend, you also had a really cool honor. Next up is Jim Melworth. PB class of 1993. Apparently, you got a Hall of Famer sitting on this call with us right now. You were inducted into your your high school's Hall of Fame, the Perkyoman Valley Hall of Fame. First off, congratulations. And talk to us about what that means to you, what that honor means for you. <laughs> it, it, it means a lot. I, and, you know, I, I can't help thinking there are people who, and not to diminish the honor because, you know, I'm very appreciative, but I also can't help thinking there are people who are much more deserving than me and, and, uh, you know, if, if you had odds on me back in 1993, being the one from that class getting into the Hall of Fame, that'd be like buying Apple stock when it was a dollar. <laughs> well, they certainly sold high on you, sir. That is that, that is amazing for you. Thank you for coming on with us, first and foremost. And congratulations once again, Jim. What else are you working on aside from your Hall of Fame acceptance? <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, Pennsylvania House and Senate are in this week. Some things are, are, are going on there. We're keeping an eye on uh, the uh, couple from Sessions. Uh, place who uh, were the, the couple that was convicted of uh, beating up an employee over being told to wear a mask. Uh, they are being sentenced in Doylestown. And then there is a very tragic, sad case here in Norristown of a man accused of murder through child abuse. But the interesting thing in this case, or again, tragic, but initially it was ruled that the autopsy was inconclusive. Two years later, uh, when another child ended up in the hospital, they were able to go back and look at that autopsy and connect more dots and now have said that it, it that, that that was murder. So that man is on trial now. Tough gig, tough week, lot in front of you. But thank you so much for taking time, both of you guys, for joining us here on today's edition of the Rundown, which is a production of KYW News Radio Original Podcast. The show is produced by, of course, as always, the world's greatest tag team, Sabrina Boyd Circa and Brian Seltzer. The director of podcasting for KYW News Radio is Tom Rickard. I'm Jay Scott Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Scott Smith. It's real Jay Scott Smith on Facebook and Instagram. Thanking you for joining us on this Monday edition of the Rundown.